0: Hello, and welcome to the Glenn Mercer Show. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on YouTube and across all your favorite podcast platforms. Our special guest today is Dr. Richmond McCarthy of Tupelo, Mississippi. That's where Elvis is from. He is a graduate of Kansas City University Osteopathic School of Medicine. He did three years of active duty as a flight surgeon. He's also certified in acupuncture. He's certified in lifestyle medicine. He's looking to open a lifestyle medicine clinic. He does something called Walk with a Doc, which we're going to talk to him about. Dr. Rich, thank you for joining us.
1: Glenn, thanks for having me on the show. I feel honored to be on your show, and I appreciate all the good work you do.
0: Well, I'm honored by your honor. Thank you, Dr. Rich. Um. Tell us about this This background. You, you started uh, studying medicine in the middle of the country, Kansas City, and somewhere along the line, you got interested in acupuncture and lifestyle medicine. How did that happen?
1: Well, I mean, I would say, um, Glenn, I've always been interested in multiple different uh, modalities. And I think one of the things that drew me to osteopathic medicine versus allopathic medicine is the fact that osteopathic medicine takes more of a whole body approach. Um, So some call it holistic. I don't know if I would use that word, but really it looks at the whole body. So whereas allopathic medicine really uses you know, more treatment modalities to diagnose and treat illnesses. I kind of look at osteopathic medicine, Mm -hmm. looks at the whole body on how it's put together and really uh, dissects it down from the musculoskeletal system to the nervous system to the metabolic system. So I just felt that was the better fit for me um, because I actually have an older brother who went the allopathic medicine route. So we have one allopathic uh, medicine or MD. And then, of course, I went the osteopathic medicine route, which is a DO.
0: Well, let's say somebody goes to a doctor because he's got um, pneumonia. Would, would, would the DO treat him any differently than the um, allopathic doc?
1: Depends on the physician, Glenn. Um, so I would say you can go down a path and you can be a osteopathic medicine and still practice more traditional medicine. I think, you know, more than anything, obviously the way I try to look at things is yes. If someone came in with me and we diagnosed them with pneumonia, um, we would want to go ahead and treat the pneumonia, but then we would want to look at their risk factors. What put them at risk, Lynn? How what, what can they do to prevent or reduce their risk moving forward, uh, both environmentally, uh, physically, and metabolically, Glenn?
0: So, fair to say that you're looking more for the cause and to prevent a recurrence, and the standard Western doctors are looking more just at the treatment and the medicines?
1: Glenn, that's the only way I know how to practice is look for the root cause. Uh, right. that is, that is, uh, I think that should be first and foremost in any physician's handbook. Uh, unfortunately that is not shared by everyone.
0: Now I'm, I'm guessing that that's what led you to a concern over diet and nutrition, that, that perspective on health. Fair to say?
1: Fair to say. Fair to say. I, I think and, one thing, go ahead, Glenn.
0: Well, what, what, what? specifically led you to the plant-based diet and to to this approach to practicing medicine?
1: Well, obviously with any type of medicine, whether it's osteopathic or allopathic, you're going to get traditional teachings. I mean, both have traditional teachings. So um, I think as I progressed in my training, I started to think, there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be better pathways to treat the patient because a lot of, even, you know, some of my professors would treat really just treat the end symptoms and that just didn't seem right to me. So thankfully um, I have that curiosity gene. And so I looked Uh outside that and I think probably like everybody has that book they read, the documentary that they saw, and the first book I read was "The China Study" by Colin Campbell, and right. that is, as you know, a landmark study, and he has been a pioneer uh, in that so that that was that was the tip of the iceberg for me, and I was hooked after that and so during my residency training, from there, uh, I read uh, "Eat to Live" by Joel Furman. Um and then book after book, and then I started to integrate those same principles into my practice. and I would encourage you know my colleagues around me uh, as well. I tried to practice what I preach and you know push that message and open their eyes to really so much more out there than what we're taught. because if you look at it, unfortunately, our current medical model is basically to keep people chronically sick. Because the, the the pharmaceutical industry, the medical um industry makes billions of dollars chronically keeping people sick. And I couldn't I couldn't go along with that. So
0: well the situation basically is that many people, most people who are sick are eating their way into disease. And as long as they keep eating the same foods all the medicine can, can do is usually try to sustain them in their sickness. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: I think that's fair to say. And I would also probably go so far to say is just prolong it. Um, Hmm. And that's really, really what you see happening because I would say, when I would say 70% of what I see on a daily basis in my practice could be treated simply with dietary and lifestyle interventions. Um, right, and so, but, you know, the current medical industry can't make money off that. Uh, so they're not interested in those types of things. Uh, so it's really, it, it's, you're having to change a whole culture and, you know, with where I practice in Mississippi, obviously we rank number one in all the things you don't want to rank number one in. Uh, so I would say in one sense, I probably have a good job security, uh, but you know, there's also a lot of opportunity. And so really, I think I'm glad I'm where I am. I'm glad I've done what I've done so far, because I think there's a lot of opportunity in this state to really start to move people in a different direction. And and there are a lot of resources out there, Glenn, just as you well know, when you start going down certain pathways and, you know, I've been plant based for over 15 years, um, you really make a network over time. And so through that, I've been able to make, you know, connections in the local area from we have a local organic CSA um, in our own town, which is surprising to be where we are. Um, and we have other people who share that same passion. Um and there, I think there is a hunger for it, Glenn. Um, I, I, think, I think people can be skeptical and I think people can write situations off. But inherently, my experience is most patients who walk through my door, Glenn, want to get better. A lot of them just right. don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, let's go back to that day 15 years ago or so after you've read T. Colin Campbell's The China mm-hmm. Study. And what happens you say to your wife, you know what? I'm not eating meat anymore. I don't think you should. What, what how did it how did it go down?
1: Well, I think it was, you know, it, I would say it was a little more gradual transition. Um obviously, you know, where I went to medical school, you know, Kansas is, you know, one of the beef capitals of the world. Uh right. and so uh but I have a great loving wife. She was supportive of that. Um, And so we made that transition. And the interesting thing is, is I would say that first year I went 100% vegan. And I had, you know, I was was very disciplined and strict. And then on my birthday, my wife said, let me cook you a small little (laughs) filet. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I think that's a, that's a terrible idea. And she was like, well, just let me do it. You know, it's been a long time. And I said, I, I, I don't think that's a good idea. But anyway, I, I, I submitted cause she's my wife. Um, uh-huh. And that was probably the worst night of my life. Glenn. my really? body, my body rejected that. And I really didn't eat uh-huh. that much, but it had been so long since I had had any type uh-huh. of product, it was was a bit surprising to me as well, but it was a very good lesson. Uh, Well, I hope
0: your wife learned that lesson, too.
1: She did. She did. Now, now
0: what about her diet? Did she she transform along with you? She has. I mean,
1: she is not percentage-wise. I mean, she still will consume probably, I would say, Glenn, 20%. Some animal based products. And, and you mm-hmm. know, my goal here is, and same with we have three boys. Um, and they're, I would say, I say boys, and they're starting to become men, um, right. ages 20, 18, and 13. And really, what I try to do is I, I try to lead by example. I try to educate them. And as you probably well know, anytime you try to force something uh, on children or loved ones, it doesn't go well. So, Again, I do my best to educate and I will say as a result, they are much healthier than I was at their age. And, okay. and, they're, and, and I think health is very much on their radar. So I would call that a win for right now.
0: Now, how about your professional colleagues? Do they think you're wacky or have they been influenced by you?
1: I would probably say a little bit of both. Uh, right. So, so I think I have, I have several colleagues. In fact, I have one or two that have gone completely plant-based based off my influence and their own desire to live a healthier lifestyle. So, so that has been very encouraging. And I will say that people are open to it. I think people are hungry for it. In fact, um, I did, I gave a recent lifestyle medicine lecture uh, at our local cardiology conference, and I was the only non-cardiologist that gave a lecture. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, it seemed after my lecture, I probably had the most engagement and questions at least the day I gave the lecture, um, because I think people are hungry for that, Glenn. Um, and 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 you know I think you know one of the ways you present it is if you look at our current you know, medical model, and you look at our current um, setup, when you look at from a technology standpoint, we're more advanced than we've ever been, Glenn. When you look at the procedures we can do, the robotic surgeries, you look at these, some of the newer uh, medicines coming out and their mechanism of action. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. However, we're sicker than we've ever been, Glenn and the the epidemic, the chronic disease, the obesity continues to expand at a linear rate, yet we're more advanced than we've ever been so obviously we're we're missing we're missing the point uh, it's so
0: obvious you say obviously it's so obvious that I'm just amazed that. We still have to be in the minority here, trying to convince the majority that they're doing something wrong. I mean, the the level we're talking about forty two percent obesity in the United States of America, and I'm guessing it's probably closer to fifty percent in Mississippi, right?
1: Uh, I think Mississippi is number one,
0: Glenn.
1: and and interesting enough, they're number one in lack of exercise. (laughs) So not only are we the must B state um we get the least amount of exercise per the c d c statistics, so again, we can look at that one or two ways Glenn you can look at it as that's kind of a tragedy um in one sense, but at the same time it's a great opportunity to be engaged and really push that message um because i th- I think it's a message that people want to hear, and I think it's um I think people are hungry for it. And I think people underestimate people are tired of being sick, Glenn. People are tired of going to the doctor and getting a medication for something that can be reversed through lifestyle and diet. But they just
0: don't know how. Right. There's that old Chinese thing about crisis equals opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on.
1: It is. Um,
0: How about your patients? when you when you sit down with an obese patient with type 2 diabetes and you explain to him or her that um that uh it's it's the way they're eating that's causing the problems uh, are they open to it have you have you transformed any of your patients into vegans
1: i've definitely tri- yes to to answer your question, that would be yes. Um, uh-huh. And and I think, you know, the conversation I start when I have a either newly diagnosed diabetic or a new patient who's a diabetic first, I, uh-huh. I kind of confront them and say, you do realize the majority of this can be reversed because that's one thing they've never been told Glenn. you know, once, you know, most doctors say once you're diagnosed as a diabetic, you're a diabetic forever. And so you are at high risk. Don't get me wrong. You can, reverse your diabetes, or what we now say, put it in remission, but you are higher risk to go back if you were to stray back to your old ways. But I think the tragedy is, is most of those patients, Glenn, don't realize they can reverse it as a chronic disease. And so that's what happens
0: when you tell them that they can. Then they're open.
1: They're, They're definitely open for that. And so that's that's do you, do you
0: say to them, look, you can reverse this, but it means you have to stop eating meat and stop eating dairy and start eating uh, a human diet of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Do, are, are, do they are they open to that?
1: I would say it's baby steps. And now I, I would say some patients, Glenn, seek me out and they seek me out specifically because how I practice medicine. Um, So they are very open. So I've had two recent patients who um, underwent cardiac catheterization, received stents, and they were not happy with their follow-up visits and the treatment regimen they were given because basically they were basically had a stent put in them, given some medicine, and then they, you know, ask what else they could do and they basically said that's about it. And so whew, wow. Um so so they 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 sought me out and both these recent ones have gone completely plant based, Glenn. And yeah. remarkable, you know, response on their lipid panels, their just quality yeah. of life, their blood pressure, their weight went back to baseline and i mean they're sold they you don't you don't yeah. have to once that happens your mission is accomplished outside of you know adjusting small things and continue to give them guidance and encouragement but it's
0: it's right.
1: it's a great thing to watch and i i don't think i could continue to practice medicine if i couldn't do those things
0: yeah yeah. I mean, I find that it works just about a hundred percent of the time. That if people are overweight or obese, uh, either have type two diabetes or are pre-diabetic, uh, suffering from a whole range of metabolic disorders, if they eat the way you and I eat, they get better, like a hundred percent of the time.
1: Well, I would say a hundred percent of the time, you're going to see significant clinical improvement without a doubt without a doubt and and, you know and and
0: most most doctors either don't know the information or they don't think that their patients can do it what what do you think it is i think it's a combination frankly i find it to be stunning you know that they don't study nutrition in medical school doctors they don't. Most doctors do not practice the way you practice. Most doctors do not talk to their patients about diet. What do they think is making their patients fat and sick, if not what they're eating? Well, do you I, find I, it as stunning as I find it? I would
1: say that I think most times I think there's it's 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 multifactorial. Um, one is some doctors just don't, just don't know. They really don't know Glenn and, and they have followed like a good student, the traditional teachings and they have bought into that and they think that's the proper way to treat. Um, so in one sense, that's, that's one of the big hurdles we've got to get over. Um, we've got to integrate more teachings from a lifestyle medicine standpoint when you're training doctors, that needs to be part of the core curriculum, Glenn. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not that the data isn't there. There are plenty of studies to support this approach. I think the other thing you look at some, some physicians, and and this this just isn't physicians, this isn't any career path, are content, Glenn. They're, you know, they're content with what they do. They're not going to go outside of their, you know, their space. And, you know, for the most part, that, that's good enough for them. And so and I think that exists in any any career path.
0: Uh, well, I, I think that last point is, is um, very insightful because I think for many doctors, they're eating the standard American diet themselves. Correct. Some of them are overweight. Correct. But they are pillars of their communities. They are. They earn a very good living. They're looked up to. Why rock the boat and tell everybody that they need to be uh, on a plant based diet? You know, it 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 just isn't in most of them to to want to rock the boat.
1: Exactly. So, and I would say the other thing, Glenn, is our current medical system is not set up to really support or reimburse that. So, so the way I look at it is the physician should get paid more if you get that patient off insulin. You get that patient off insulin, you just saved that insurance company $1,000 a month minimum. So you get them off insulin, you get them off, you know, some of these different high priced oral diabetic medications. Because if you look at most health organizations, um, Glenn, when you look at the pharmacy cost, Diabetes medications accounts for sixty to seventy percent of the cost of their pharmacy total cost. I mean, it, it's amazing what wow. those medications cost. So, so you've got, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the miracle weight loss drug Ozempic, um, mm-hmm. that is heavily, <laughs> heavily coveted um, from the common housewife who does not have diabetes, but desperately wants to lose weight, but doesn't want to do the things that needs to be done um, to, to the overweight diabetic who will definitely benefit from that. Um, if you, you know, utilize other lifestyle measures and take, take that opportunity. And that's what I try to tell my patients is that this, this is an opportunity to also change all the habits that got you to where you are. Um, so, so I'm not against using medication. Don't get me wrong, because Mm -hmm. not every patient is going to be as open as you or I are to those lifestyle changes, but sometimes you just have to take what they give. And as you make progress, what you see is they become more and more open to those changes. And that's, that's what the goal is for any patient to improve their overall state of health and to think that we're going to change every patient into a fully whole food plant-based diet. um, That, that little bit wishful thinking, uh, but I think. That's a
0: specialty of mine.
1: I understand. I understand. understand. And I I think, I think we definitely need people like you, Glenn. Uh, We definitely need people like you. So so, I, I think that, I think, in my opinion, if we could get a baseline and really integrate that plant based nutrition in every medical school across the nation and use that as frontline therapy, because lifestyle intervention should be frontline therapy for every patient, bar none. And, right. and You know, we know we have that small percentage of people who aren't going to, you know, adhere to some of that. But I would say nine times out of 10, people are willing to make changes if they can see the value in it, Glenn. Um, But, you know, just like this conversation. You know, when you look at medicine and the way it's practiced, we are moving more toward what's called value based care where you are basically paid or reimbursed for the value you provide that patient, the quality of care, but currently, um, it's still somewhat fee for service. So that means Glenn, the more people I see, the more money I make, which means if you actually want to take time with your patients, and educate them, you're going to, in theory, in that model, lose money. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. You say that it's moving towards value-based compensation. In what way?
1: Well, that's how the insurances are moving toward reimbursing both health systems and physicians. So basically... Some of that is cost saving, So you can say, let's say you're caring for a hundred um, of these participants of this particular insurance and they allot a thousand dollars per participant and you hit all the criteria of what they call quality-based care, but you do it for $800 then there is a cost saving between the insurance and the system. So basically, you would split what you saved.
0: Um, Well, wait a minute there. So that's the insurance company rewarding you for saving money. But do they reward you for, for getting the 100 obese patients to not be obese?
1: It's going to be slow, Glenn. (laughs) <laughs> uh it's going to be blurred. That's so, not
0: what they're rewarding you for, huh? Uh,
1: well, I would say they're moving towards so really right now when you look at quality based care, you're looking at colonoscopies, mammograms, uh-huh. pneumonia shots. So, so I think there is positive that is a positive yeah. direction. Now is it the direction that you and I want it to be? Not quite. Mm-hmm. But yeah. again, you know, big things move very slowly. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's talk colonoscopy since you raised the subject. Sure. That's always an interesting thing to talk about. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I confess I've never had the pleasure of Thank having you. a colonoscopy. Now, it has. I'm getting old enough now that it has been recommended to me for a couple of decades. Uh, to have one, and every year I like to visit my doctor once a year for an annual checkup to see how he's feeling. Sure. Um, and um, every year it's recommended to me, and every year I make an excuse. And here's my reasoning, and t- and and everybody out there, I'm not a doctor. Don't listen to me. I'm just giving my uneducated opinion. Please listen to Doctor Rich, not to me. But here's here's my uh, thinking on it. There are some risks associated with colonoscopy. They are slim. Um, But every so often, somebody's colon gets perforated. Um, You know, uh, and so every so often, there's a downside.
1: There is.
0: Um, And um, there are statistics on it. There have been a lot of studies on it. Right. And I think they've probably proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that for the average American, there's some benefit to getting a colonoscopy. But I'm not the average American. Correct. I'm not eating what, what they're eating. There are no studies, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are no studies of whether somebody on a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet benefits from a colonoscopy uh, in, in relation to the risks. So that's why I haven't done it because I, I, I don't see any science out there telling me that I should do it. Well your reaction I, I, to that.
1: I think uh, I think it's case by case in one sense. So I would say with where I practice, I practice with a higher risk population. So when sure. you look at the majority of these patients who follow the standard American diet. Um, and, of course, there are other risk factors. African-Americans tend to have a higher incidence. Um, obviously, you know, there's a direct link to processed meats and colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. So sure. two pieces of bacon a day, you know, it, it, it doesn't take much. Oh, now,
0: Yeah, I would recommend it for anybody eating that way.
1: <laughs> so, so I, I would – you can draw the analogy. And some of this you, you can pull from um, – well, there are a couple things you can pull it from. But actually – You know, the China study is going to show one. And then John Robinson, um, healthy at 100, uh, had some good, good kind of good data, too. But so what you're really referring to is you follow a high fiber and we know. That's right. Right. So we know high fiber diets actually reduce your risk um, definitely over time. And you're not putting foods in that increase your risk. Um, That's right. Also. You're staying within a normal b m i so so what I would say to you is you are definitely low risk with the way you practice now, I think you know you're not no risk and right if you if you didn't have a family history, so if there's no family history um I mean, I would say the odds are in your favor that it is highly unlikely you will go on to develop it um right. If you draw some of those analogies, so I I I wouldn't argue too hard with you uh, on that one. mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know I have a general philosophy, which is if I'm having a problem and it doesn't go away and it's bothersome, I go to the doctor, and I also check on my blood work from time to time. Um. You know, and last time I discovered I was a little low on vitamin D, so I'm taking vitamin D supplements. Um, But if I don't have a problem, I don't go looking for problems. Um, And um, I'm scared of tests that find things that sometimes you're not looking for. I'll give you another example. I I once had a 104 fever, so I went to the doctor. 104 is pretty high. It is. Um, And he did what was probably right. I am not criticizing him. He said I should have a chest X-ray to rule out pneumonia, I think, was the reasoning. Correct. Now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's probably standard of care, right? A reasonable thing for him to say? That would be,
1: so I would say that would be reasonable if I had, I would probably screen you for certain things if this was kind of the flu season, screen you for flu, probably right. get a baseline, baseline blood count. And right. depending on that, then I would say, yes, a chest x-ray would be appropriate if there was no obvious etiology, uh, to your fever.
0: Right. Well, um, I, um, I wouldn't object at any time to a blood test, but I didn't want the chest x-ray. And he right. said, why not? And I said, because you're going to tell me that I have a, a, a a nodule on my thyroid or, or, or a dark spot in my lung. You're going to make me miserable. I don't want to know it. He said, but if you had a dark spot in your lung, wouldn't you want to know about it? I said, of course not. Why would I want to know about it? I, I don't, I don't go looking for things. I'm, I'm feeling fine, except I got 104 fever. So could I please have an antibiotic, you know? And that that's my attitude. I just do not want to, Test for things if I'm not having a problem. I have 104 fever. I need to go to the doctor. But I do not want to do unnecessary testing.
1: I understand. And I would say there is a lot of unnecessary testing um, that does exist out there. Um so that's I think it's important, you know, like anything, Glenn, is that that communication aspect between the patient and the doctor is key. And the better the communication, the more comfortable you are as the patient to understand the value of that chest X-ray and what it will do for right. you and what it won't. Um, right. And I think it's important as a physician to respect your um, your position, but also to be very educational to say, that's fine. But, you know, if I give you an antibiotic in that scenario, we don't quite know what we're treating. Yes, you do have a fever. Right. And it could be bacteria. So, right. So I, I agree with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I just think that you know very few doctors are encouraging their patients to engage in healthy habits with their diet. And too many doctors are willing to test to the limits, you know? And so what you what you have is a is an unhealthy population that is worried about all kinds of you know, nodules on their thyroid and all kinds of things that maybe they're better off not knowing about, but what they should be focused on is eating healthy. Um, well, the focus
1: you, is the right, area, right.
0: You were a, a flight surgeon in the Correct. Air Force. I was. Now, tell me about being a flight surgeon. I'm, I'm guessing that doesn't mean you were doing tonsillectomies in the cockpit. What, what does it mean to be a flight surgeon?
1: Well, I, I think in the old, maybe, maybe that would have voted to be true. Um, but, but in this day and age, no. So a, a flight surgeon is essentially attached to a squadron and they basically provide medical support from a aerospace medicine. So I did, I had to go through some additional training as a physician in aerospace medicine. So I think any full blooded guy who enjoys, you know, activity, exercise, sports. Uh, this was, this was a great fit for me. Um, so Uh I got to basically go through a modified version of pilot, you know, training. And so you get to kind of experience what they experience because if you don't, how do you know what they're experiencing? Um, so that was, that was a really neat, neat thing. So basically you're, you're attached to the squadron and then you deploy wherever the squadron goes and continue to provide medical support. And that was, that's kind of the general um, role of the flight surgeon. And, and with where I was, I was stationed at what's called Bill Air Force Base, which is in Northern California. Uh, the mission of that base is reconnaissance. And they have, at the time, they still flew what's called the U-2. And that's the one where Gary Powers got shot down. Yeah, that was is- right. That spy yeah.
0: plane, wasn't it?
1: Right, right. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, just from, you know, a medicine physiology standpoint, they wear what's called a complete pressure suit. And so basically a space suit and they're flying 70,000 plus uh, in altitude. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a neat, neat
0: setup. Did you learn to fly along the way? So that
1: would have been grand I think if I had not been married with two young children uh-huh. uh I could have gotten my pilot license but I don't know if my wife would have loved me as much uh uh-huh. if I had been gone any more than I was so that now I will say with the with the pilots that I became close with once we got up in the air they were happy to turn over the stick uh I just wasn't uh-huh. planning on taking off
0: so that that okay. was Okay So you were like a little kid who's with daddy in the car with the steering wheel. Basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And that was,
1: you know, you got a lot of neat opportunities uh, in that aspect. So it Mm -hmm. was, it was a great. Did you enjoy flying? Oh, loved it. Loved it. So it it was, it was a great experience. Um, And I I would, I would do it
0: in a heartbeat again. So. All right. Now, where did the interest in acupuncture come in?
1: Um I think I always had an interest, you know, there was and I, I'm going to I'm going to forget his name, um but it was I might be incorrect. Uh, I want to say it may have been even back far as in the Roosevelt area uh, era. Um but there was a, you know, high-end um basically government diplomat who was over, I want to say in Japan, when I want to say he had ended up having an appendectomy. And what happened was, is during that course of treatment, they use acupuncture for a lot of post-op pain. He had what's called a post-op ileus. They use acupuncture to treat that. And I was fascinated by that. And so, obviously, when I'm fascinated by something, just like plant-based medicine, I dive in. And when I dove in, I was like, this is something I've got to do. Um, And so, I looked and I found a physician-based course. um, And I was able to do that my third year in residency. Um, So, I I completed my acupuncture course while I completed my last year of uh, residency. So...
0: And, and how was- often have you used it in your role as a doctor?
1: So I would say probably, Glenn. My first seven years of practice, I, I had a dedicated half day um, where all I did was really? acupuncture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so really? when we designed...
0: within it, within what kind of medical setting?
1: Uh clinic setting. So,
0: uh, kind so of within a- a, within a standard Western clinic, you were practicing acupuncture. Yes. That's that's uh, unusual, isn't it in Mississippi?
1: Uh very unusual. <laughs> and very.
0: <laughs> did you get a lot of funny looks?
1: Um I I, I think I got a lot of raised eyebrows. Uh okay. so, but but again, like anything, there is when you bring something of value to any area, there there's going to be a market, there's going to be a demand. And if you're doing it for the right reasons, um, there always is. So, so that was, that was a great, great experience. I, I remember I was probably in practice for, I bet I'd been there two weeks. I had a, a older gentleman come in who had had the hiccups for two weeks. Huh. straight. Glenn.
0: Oh my God. That's a nightmare.
1: And he had, he had seen multiple physicians. And he was, uh, I really think he was about to lose his mind. And so I said, look, I said, let's try this acupuncture treatment. We did it. He called me the next day and said, if I was there, I would hug you um, because my hiccups are gone. Now, it could have been coincidental. It's possible. Uh
0: Um, but, but there's definitely value in that. And so now is there, is there a a spot that you're supposed to hit with the needles when somebody has the hiccups? How do you know where to, where to poke them?
1: Well, so just like most things, there are different protocols. Um, Uh and in one interesting thing, um, there's a protocol called battlefield acupuncture. And so battlefield acupuncture was actually developed, as you would think, in the kind of military setting, there was a colonel in the Air Force who did pre and post MRIs on points, acupuncture points that help control pain. And so what they would do is they would do the treatment and then do a post MRI. And what you would see is a lot of those areas in the brain that light up because of pain, would have significantly gone down. And so they implemented this in practice. So medics would go in and, and it was a it was an ear protocol. So they would put basically it's five five little metal studs essentially that you put in and they had great, great results. Um, so it's it's really it's fascinating. Um, and, and if if I had an ideal world, Glenn I would go over you know to Japan or China and study for a year um just because mm. I'm so fascinated um fascinated by it. because you know if you read the literature you know in the more rural areas, they will actually use acupuncture for mild anesthesia to do simple procedures interesting uh, that
0: you say that because a few years ago I went for acupuncture just for some mild leg pain I was having, and um uh the, the woman acupuncturist put the needles all over my body and mm-hmm. then she she said now now rest here for 20 minutes and I'll be back and I th- think the lights were out or very low and every single session when she left me alone for 20 minutes I fell asleep there was something about having those needles in my body that just put me to sleep is that an unusual uh, yeah. reaction
1: not at all. Not at all. It's not unusual, unusual at all. And, and that's about what I would do with treatments. And then of course um, I would do a lot of uh, what they call pins treatments or peripheral electrical nerve stimulation. So kind of, if you've ever heard of a tens unit, they use a tens unit a lot, even with physical therapy, but actually you can hook that up to the needles and conduct mild electricity um, for different types of treatment. Um, and then you, you can use heat, you can use what's called moxa, um, which is the funny smelling stuff. Um, now that, that drew some very high eyebrows because Uh moxa smells similar to some illegal, (laughs) illegal things people like to Uh, smell. How do you
0: spell this word? Moxa? Yeah. It sounds Uh, like the Jewish bread. Um, I don't, I don't think
1: it's spelled the same way. Uh, so if I remember correctly, Glenn, it's M-O-X-A, Moxa.
0: Oh, M-O-X-X.
1: Okay. It sounded
0: like, uh, unleavened bread. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and so, so is acupuncture a good treatment for, um, a a way to either avoid pain or overcome pain.
1: Oh, without a doubt. It's a, it's a great treatment modality because
0: post-operative procedure.
1: Yes, you could do. Yep. Definitely. So, so I I think, um, you know, they, the way acupuncture looks at things, they have what's called principal meridians. So think of those as energy Mm -hmm. highways throughout your body. And so when they look at problems, they really look at it one of three ways. There is a, basically a barrier that you have to overcome. There is a deficit that you have to basically replace, or there's an excess that you have to get rid of. So Mm -hmm. that's essentially how they look at things. And then you, you recreate a balance.
0: Okay. Tell us about walk with a dock. What is this program? Did you start this program in your town?
1: I did. I did. So th- it was it was a challenge because um, I was able to get some funding for that kind of through a grant. And there, it was a cardiologist who started this. And so basically it started with him saying, had a couple of his patients meet him at the park and said, let's go mm-hmm. for a walk. And from that evolved walk with the doc. And while he was there, he would talk with them um, about different topics, about health, um, about, you know, different lifestyle and dietary interventions that you could do to improve your overall quality of health. And as that kind of blossomed, he was like, well, this would be a great program. And so that mm-hmm. walk with, walk with the doc evolved. And so um, we have a, Um, nurse practitioner fellowship program through our hospital. And I I brought that in. And that's one thing they kind of helped champion um, to bring people. And we have a local hospital track. And so we would meet and somebody would give a little small lecture at the beginning, and then everybody would walk and you would, you could come up to, you know, whether any type of medical provider and have a conversation and ask questions. And it was very casual Um, which was very nice.
0: Well, it seems to me a beautiful thing to do for the community because it's a way for people to get to know their doctors, spend time with their doctors, actually get some exercise with their doctors. And I imagine what happens is sometimes they sidle over to you and say, hey, what should I do about this? You know, I'm having some pain in my shoulder or whatever. And they get some free consultation, right? Exactly, exactly.
1: That's yeah. uh, that's and it and like you said, it fosters that good relationship, and that's that's key to I think helping people move in the right direction. So
0: yeah, yeah. So how many doctors are participating in in Tupelo in Walk with a Doc?
1: I would not say a high percentage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, w- I would I would like just a to- handful of you. Just a handful. That's correct. So, okay.
0: so, and and how many? So, on a typical, uh, is it a, a, an afternoon or early evening when you go walking?
1: It's typically a afternoon, maybe kind of like a after lunch time. Usually, it lasts okay. up to an hour, and so you know you'll get anywhere from maybe thirty to forty people that show up.
0: Really, thirty to forty people come <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: with with two or three doctors, maybe. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. So. So it's, it's good. It's, 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 it's another great
0: program. That ought to be a national program. It should, it should. I agree. Uh, And, and now you, you have ambitious plans to start a, a lifestyle medicine clinic in Tupelo, Mississippi, right?
1: that's correct. Um, we are,
0: what, what do you envision this clinic? Uh, what, what do you think it'll be like? What, how will it differ from most clinics?
1: So this clinic Glenn is going to be more of a team-based approach. Um, and so what that basically means is you're going to work with a team to improve your overall state of health. So what you'll do is you'll meet with me as the physician um, from a lifestyle medicine standpoint and from a metabolic standpoint, then you'll meet with the dietitian who's going to be plant centered, plant-based dietitian. You'll meet with the exercise physiologist because exercise is a key component to both, you know, acute and long-term health. And then you'll have a screening by a physical therapist to look for any major functional deficits. That may prevent you from doing that. So.
0: All right. Yeah. And you hope that this will exist. Starting when? The hope right now, Glenn, is that we're we're
1: projecting the first of the year. So January of two thousand twenty-four is the current projection. Uh, but like anything, I won't hold my breath. Uh, okay. But we will, we will continue to be optimistic and positive um, and work in that direction. But so far we kind of have great, great support. I think, I think there are a lot of people behind it. I think it timing, timing is good timing at this point. And, uh, again, we'll hope for the best and, you know, keep pushing.
0: So once that happens, that'll be your, your, your workplace. That'll be where you're Working as a doctor full time right?
1: so we'll slowly evolve that Glenn because that's a that's a new new design new model, and so I'll start off there, Glenn, one day a week and oh, so only we'll one of, day a week right well, so we that's one of those things that you kind of have to grow um okay. and so you know not everybody's looking for that. I wish everybody was, and I wish that was the design, mm-hmm. but you just like anything. You know, we have what we want, but we also have to have realistic expectations. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that's key, too. But like like anything of value, kind of like the field of dreams, uh, if you build it, uh, hopefully they will come. So.
0: All right. so it's a function of patient demand. If the patients demand it, you'll be spending more time there. Correct. Correct. So let me say to the people of Tupelo, Mississippi, who are listening. When that clinic is up, that's where you want to go. You want to go to the lifestyle medicine clinic to get healthy instead of just getting medicines <laughs> and staying sick. Exactly. Um, it's really that that simple and that obvious, isn't it, that people need to treat the causes of disease rather than just treating the symptoms.
1: It's that simple, Glenn. It really is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you find, Dr. Rich, that you're winning over your colleagues one by one?
1: I think that I've been at it long enough that I think people know I'm passionate about it. And I think that as things evolve, and I I would say just like the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, you're seeing these things pop up over time and promoting that. And, And more importantly, Glenn that the empirical data is there. it's not a question of, hey, they're those kind of wonky crazy vegans who, you know, eat grass and berries and uh, you know, are trying to save animals. I mean, this is this is a science. And I think I think that's partly how you went over some of this population is that, you know, this isn't this isn't the 60s or 70s anymore. Um I've got hard data to show you that why wouldn't you be doing this why would you still be you know recommending a low fat diet or a you know high protein diet in the sense that this is what that's going to do so you know I, there's just not a question anymore and um i think that's that's another avenue we approach because people i think I think most physicians will listen to reason when you've got data to back it up and not everybody, but, you know, but I think most mm-hmm. physicians will. And so you just have to kind of buy into it. So.
0: Well, Dr. Richmond McCarty, thank you for doing the good work you do in the underserved state of Mississippi. Thank you for joining us today. And keep up the good fight for good health. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to su- subscribe. Uh, we, we, we're trying to get to 2 million subscribers, so we're a little shy of that right now, but please subscribe and we'll get there. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Rich, for joining us.
1: And Glenn, thanks for providing a good platform uh, to pass on that message.
0: All right. All right.